So we're in a series in the book of Galatians, and we've been going uh, through the book, uh, looking at Paul's argument about the gospel. And uh, this morning we come to another text, and it's a very difficult uh, passage. As uh, Michael read it, it's, it's, um, it's sort of uh, detailed, and, and it's a tight-woven twi- tight argument that draws on an ancient story. But I want to introduce it like this. And I might need some of your participation as, we, as I do the intro here. So in our culture, there are folk uh, sayings about God, uh, things that we as a people, uh, we as a culture have come up with to describe who God is and, and the way he works in the world. And so, uh, for example, one of these things is God works in mysterious ways. And you hear that a lot. You know, people say that in our culture to talk about God. And then there's another one, and uh, maybe some of you have heard, heard this one. Uh, your, mom, your grandma maybe uh, told you this one when she wanted you to behave or be responsible. Uh, can anybody think of what this one might be? Anybody? You just yell it out if you want. Put the fear of God in you. That's good, but that's not the one I'm thinking of. <laughs> anybody else? Michael, that is perfect. That is exactly right. God helps those who helps themselves. And this is just a folk saying. This is what people say in our culture. A lot of people say this in our culture. In fact, there was a... Um, a, uh, a, many of you have seen Jay Leno there on The Tonight Show, and he does this little sketch called jaywalking. And he'll go around the cities of, uh, the city of New York, and he'll ask people questions on the street. And uh, one, one question he went out and he asked people was, could you, could you name just one of the Ten Commandments? And the most popular thing that people said was, God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> now, as popular as this saying is, It is a staggering lie about God. It is not one of the Ten Commandments. In fact, it's not even in the Bible. And if your grandmama told this to you, your grandma is a heretic. (laughs) This is not in the Bible. And in fact, this is actually completely the polar opposite of the message of Scripture. Uh, This is antithetical to the central message of our faith, the gospel. Because what the gospel says is that God helps those who can't help themselves. What the gospel teaches us is that the God of the Bible is a God of rescue. And he rescues people who are in dire need and they can't help themselves. This is the central message of the gospel. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, What Paul is, remember Paul is, uh, he's talking to um, this church in Galatia. And here's the situation. The the Galatians, they were a Greek church, a a messy group of pagan Gentiles who uh, Paul preached to them the gospel. And he said, God loves you, and God died on the cross to save you, and he wants to bring you into his family just as you are, free of charge. And so they believed the gospel, and they were brought in. They were rescued. But then in Paul's wake, some Judaizers, some uh, Jewish Christian missionaries, came into the church, and they said, Paul's message was so good, wasn't it? Well, it was too good to be true. You can't be accepted by God by doing nothing. If you want to be accepted by God, you've got to get to work. In fact, they said, you know, if you want to be sons and daughters of Abraham, you've got to do what the sons and daughters of Abraham have always done. You've got to be circumcised and keep the Mosaic legislation. In effect, they were saying, clean yourself up. Work on your life. Sure, they weren't against faith in Jesus. Yeah, faith in Jesus is good to start with, but it's faith plus cleaning your life up. And this is something that uh, many of us believe as Christians. We're still believing this lie. Yeah, faith in Jesus is good, 
but it's not enough to be accepted by God. Oh, no. If you want God to accept you, you've got to believe and have your kids in order. That's maybe one of the things we believe. Or you've got to believe and have all of your ducks in a row spiritually. Or you've got to believe and have faithful church attendance. Or you've got to believe and have a great job and be very responsible. Listen, all these things are good, but they are not requirements for God to accept you. Acceptance by God is by faith, plus nothing. It is free. And this is the message of Galatians. And what Paul is saying is that you don't have to clean yourself up for God to accept you. Salvation is free. Obedience is important, but it's not an ingredient for God to make you a son or a daughter. And all of these versions of you've got to help yourself. God helps those who help themselves. Paul says that's wrong. And that doesn't work no matter what the the Judaizers are telling you. And so here in this chapter, what Paul is going to continue to drive this home, we've been hearing it a lot, but Paul is going to drive this home, and he does it by getting on the Jewish teacher's own turf. Remember they were saying we're sons and daughters of Abraham. And Abraham kept the law, and Abraham was circumcised. He cleaned himself up. That's how the sons and daughters of Abraham did it. And Paul says, oh, not so fast. Are you sure about that? What about Abraham? What does it really mean to be Abraham's children? Does it really mean that you've got to help yourself? That it's faith plus these other things? Or did Abraham actually believe that salvation was free? And so Paul is going to drive that home. He's going to do it in this very difficult passage and he's going to do it by, by doing three things. And those, these are the three things we're going to look at this morning. Uh, Paul is going to tell us the story of Abraham, the historical account of Abraham. And so we're going to look at that. And then he gives us an allegory of the story of Abraham. He's going to us, tell us, let me allegorize this, and I'll explain what that means when we get there. And then finally, he's going to apply it, right? And so um, we're going to look at the history, the allegory, and the application. What that means is that relevance is coming, but at the very end, okay? We've got to wait a while to get there. So first, let's look at the historical picture of Abraham here, beginning in verse 21. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, or tell me, you who desire to justify yourselves or work your way or to help your way into acceptance with God, do you listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. We'll stop there. So Paul here alludes to the story that comes out of the book of Genesis. And it's a story that all his Jewish, uh, the Jewish teachers would have known about. Probably many of these, even Greek uh, folks, heard about it. But uh, maybe some of us this morning aren't familiar with the story of Abraham and Hagar and Ishmael. And so I'm going to go back to Genesis and just lay some groundwork by telling us all the story. It begins like this. God came to Abraham. Way back in the book of Genesis, God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, uh, I'm going to save the world through you and your children. Through you, I'm going to, you know, you're going to have not only one son, not two, but many sons. You're going to have as many sons and daughters as there are sands of the seashore. Your children are going to be as many as the stars in the heavens. You're going to have a multitude of children. You're going to have a huge family. And here's the thing. Through your family, I'm going to save the world. Through your posterity, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. And so Abraham says, great, this is amazing. But here's the problem. Here's the irony. And I love this about God. God gives this promise to Sarah and Abraham 
this problem of many, this promise of many, many children to a couple that is barren. You see, here's the thing. Sarah and Abraham couldn't have children. They were infertile. And so God comes to this infertile couple and says, through you, I'm gonna have, you're going to have many, many sons, and there's going to be a huge, great nation uh, from Sarah's infertile womb. Now, uh, this is it's highly unusual, but Abraham said, okay, all right, that, that's great. Thank you, God. And so they wait for their child. God can do miracles, so they wait for their child. So they wait 10 years, and they wait 20 years, and they wait 30 years. Sarah's still barren. There are no children. And so uh, Abraham and Sarah begin to get a little bit nervous. What are we going to do? I mean, God's promised us this child, but <laughs> we're barren, we're still barren, and we're old now. I mean, how's God ever going to fulfill this promise? And you've got to think, this must have been very frustrating and, and even almost devastating for Abraham. What are we going to do? We're old. Is God even true? I mean, he made this promise. Is, is it even real? But think about how devastating it probably was for Sarah. Because uh, in the ancient world, uh, it went, for a woman, a childbearing was everything. If you were a woman, uh, building a home and having children was your life. It's where you got your identity. It's where you got your sense of meaning and purpose. You know, for children, for a woman in the ancient world, they were your capital. But she's barren. And not only that, she's thinking, well, wait a minute. So God wants to save the world, and the only thing standing between God saving the world and, and uh, you know, the world is my barren womb. It's me. I'm the problem. If it wasn't for my stupid, barren, infertile womb, things would be fine. But, you know, here, I'm the barrier stand between, standing between God's blessing for the world. And so she's frustrated. And it must have been incredibly devastating for Sarah. Now, some of you may have experienced infertility. Me and my wife did for, for a time. And it took us years until we had children. And I remember, even in our day and age, where all that sort of meaning and significance is, I mean, it's still there, but not as much in the ancient world. It's still devastating and frustrating. And we were right, you know, right about to get in vitro, you know, ready to go to the hospital, get in vitro, and then boom, Anita got pregnant. And then it was like dominoes, boom, 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 boom. <laughs> Five more children. But it's devastating. And it was for Sarah. And it wasn't just a psychological problem, it was a theological problem. How is God going to bless the world if I'm barren? And so you can see why uh, what, what Sarah does is she, sa she propositions Abraham. She says, look, Abraham, we're old, and this baby is not going to happen. How about this? I've got, I've got a servant. We have a servant. Her name is Hagar, an Egyptian servant. What about this, Abraham? Why don't you sleep with Hagar? She'll have a son, and that son will be the son of promise. That'll be the son where God blesses the world, that God blesses the world through. Now, this was very common in the ancient world. Uh, you know, uh, polygamy was very common in the ancient world. Uh, if, if, you, uh, if one wife was infertile, you would just go to the next wife, and this was very common. But you've got to see in the Bible, God never condones this sort of thing. There was polygamy in the Old Testament, but God never condoned it. In fact, every story in the Bible of polygamy, God always shows that it ends up horribly. <laughs> right? One wife is enough. And this situation ends horribly, and it's a big, big story, and uh, I can't get into it this morning. But Abraham does sleep with Hagar, and Hagar does have a child. They named the child Ishmael. And uh, they, they did, uh, God, uh, Abraham did ask God to bless this child. 
and things were going fine until it, God told, came to Abraham and said, this Ishmael is not the child of promise. There will be another, just like what Yoda said in Star Wars, there is another. Princess Leah is what I'm talking about. Some of you don't have no idea what I'm talking about. I shouldn't even have said it. There will be another. There's another son coming. And finally, in old age, very old age, Sarah's 90 years old. Abraham is somewhere around 100 years old. And Sarah gets pregnant. And uh, they called the child Isaac, which literally means laughter, because Sarah laughed when she found out she was going to have a kid. And so there are these two children. Isaac becomes the son of promise. But for Abraham, Ishmael, Ishmael always represented the son that came through his own lack of trust. Ishmael was the son that represented to Abraham that he was, that he was trusting in his own self to fulfill God's promise. You see, when Sarah propositioned Abraham and said, why don't you sleep with Hagar, Abraham had a choice. He could wait for God He could wait for this uh, supernatural, divine grace gift, and he could wait for it until God just gave it to him. Or he could do, frankly, what was in his own power to do. Sleep with Hagar, I'll do it myself, and I'll grab God's promise, I'll obtain God's promise, I'll earn God's promise with my own capability instead of waiting for God to give it to me by grace. Ishmael always represented to Abraham the thing he did in his own strength to achieve the promise of God. And many of us might have those instances in our own lives, those lapses of faith where we're trusting in ourselves. Yeah, Christianity is all about, you know, resting everything in God, but we do have those instances where we're trusting in us and we're working in our own capabilities, and we might even have little reminders of those things all around us. This is when I was working in my own strength to achieve what God wanted to give me as a gift. So that's the story, and I just wanted to tell it to you. But here's what Paul does says. Hear what Paul does here. He says, this story about Abraham, this story that I just told you about is not just a personal story about Abraham. It is an allegory is what Paul says here. And so let's look what Paul says in verse 24. He says, uh, he tells the story, and then he says, now, This may be interpreted allegorically. Uh, These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. As it is written, rejoice, O barren woman, who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. We'll stop there. Paul says the story is an allegory. Now, what is an allegory? An allegory is a story where the characters and the situations have spiritual meanings. And so if you've read uh, Pilgrim's Progress, for example, there are characters in that book that represent uh, spiritual things in the Christian life. And Paul says the story of, of Hagar and, it, and, uh, and Sarah The story of Ishmael and uh, Isaac, it's an allegory. These two sons stand for something. What do they stand for? Paul says, well, they stand for two different types of covenants. And it gets a little complicated here, but what is a covenant? A covenant is a solemn agreement between God and humanity. A covenant is an agreement between God and man. It's a way of relating to God. 
And so Paul says uh, these two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, they stand for two different covenants, two different uh, ways of approaching and relating to God. In other words, what Paul is saying is that there are, there are two sorts of people in the world. There are two different ways to relate to God. There are two different approaches to life represented by these two children. Someone once said there are two types of people in the world. Those who divide the world into two types of people and those who don't. Well, apparently Paul was one of those people who liked to divide the world into two different types of people. He says, you are either Ishmael or you're Isaac. Which one are you? Well, here's the one way. The one way is Ishmael. And Ishmael, Paul says, represents the law. Ishmael represents Sinai. Ishmael represents self-sufficiency. Ishmael represents earning righteousness from God, and Ishmael represents slavery. This is the one way that you can live. You can live by achievement. You can live earning your justification and your acceptance from your own self-sufficient merits and ability. You could be working this thing on your own, whether you're doing it through the law of God like the Old Testament Israel or some other way. You, you can be living your life where you're justifying yourself, where you are working to achieve your own sense of justification and righteousness before God and others. And it's you, it's, it's your attainments and, and your ability that's doing it. And what Paul says is that this leads to, like Ishmael, slavery. Hagar was a slave and so was the son. If this is the way that you're going, Paul says it's going to end up in slavery. One of my favorite stories of this is in the movie Chariots of Fire. Uh, anybody seen Chariots of Fire? I uh, remember there was that character in the movie called Her Harold Abrams. And he was this uh, Jewish man who was, very, he was a very good runner. Uh, he was an achievement guy, you know. He was very successful and he worked really hard. And, and yet he was torn up inside. He was sort of a slave to his own de desire to achieve. And at one point in the movie, he's, it's before this big race, you know, with uh, Eric Little, who's the other character in the movie. He's a Christian. And he's before this race, and he's torn up, and he's just in bondage, and he's afraid, and he's just filled with anxiety. And uh, he says, somebody says, you've got to be content. You've got to be okay. This race is not everything. And, and this is what he says. He says, contentment, I am 24, and I've never, and I've never known it. I'm forever in pursuit and I don't even know what I'm chasing. And then he says this, and now in one hour's time, I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor, four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. But will I? And this is the way of Hagar. This is the one way. You're justifying your existence through morality, through working real hard to be a responsible person, you're trying to tell yourself, I'm, I'm not a bum, I am a good person. And what Paul says is that mentality is going to lead to slavery. You're going to drive yourself into the ground. It's going to eat you alive. Whether you're, trying to, whether you're using being a good mother, or being a good boss, or being a good religious person, that way of justifying yourself, Paul says, leads to slavery. It leads to bondage. But then there's this other way. It's the way of Isaac. And this is the way of grace. This is a way of, of receiving a gift from the outside. This is the way where you say, look, I'm not going to justify myself uh, by my own capabilities. I'm not going to try to justify myself at all. I'm going to wait. 
and I'm going to receive my justification. I'm going to receive my righteousness as a gift. And this is the way of Christianity. So Christianity says the way you become a righteous person is not by working really hard at it and offering that righteousness to God, and then he blesses you. God works really hard on the righteousness, and then he gives it to you as a gift. It comes from the outside, and it's a righteousness beyond your ability. And this is the way that leads to freedom. So these are the two ways. Which way are you going? Are you a son of Isaac, or are you a son of Ishmael? Somebody says it depends on what day you ask me. Here's the good news. When you decide that you're not going to try to earn anything from God, it brings incredible hope into your life. Because this is what Paul says here, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the child of the desolate one will be more than those who than the one who has a husband. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, here's the good news of God's grace. You can say, look, God helps those who help themselves, and it'll drive you into bondage. Or you can say, look, I, I can't do anything, and I'm helpless. And God says, here's the good news. There is hope when you go this route. Because all of us have flaws. All of us have barrenness. All of us have inabilities. And those inabilities, so often, they imprison us. And Paul says, but look, here's the good news of the gospel. There's grace to the barren. There is fruitfulness to the one who has no ability to bear children. And there is righteousness for all those of us who cannot attain the righteousness on our own. It gives us incredible hope. And Paul quotes this by saying, look, this is the way God has always worked in the world. God has always been a God who gives, who, who helps those who can't help themselves. He's always been that sort of God. And so, for example, at the very beginning, you, you remember God chose Israel. Why did God choose Israel? This is the story of the Bible. Was it because Israel was stronger than every other nation? No. Was it because they were more righteousness, righteous than any other nation? No, in fact, Israel was weaker and more helpless than all the other nations. And this is, what, uh, this is the way God puts it way back in Deuteronomy 9. He says, it is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going to take in to take possession of their land. But on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to, to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess. For you are a stiff-necked people. So God says, look, why am I choosing you, Israel? Was it because you were more righteous? No, you're stiff-necked, he said. But he says, I am in the business of giving grace to the barren. And I'm going to take you, and I'm going to bless you and bless the world through you, oh foolish, small, barren Israel. And then later on, Israel is in exile, and it's because of their sin, and they're helpless. And this is where God says, reminds them of, of Sarah, and he says, listen, I'm a God who gives grace to the barren. Yes, you're in exile. Yes, you're weak. But I'm the God who provides fruitfulness out of those who can't bear it on their own. 
So this was the message of the Old Testament. But then you remember in the New Testament, Jesus comes on the scene, and he does the Sermon on the Mount. What's the first thing he says? Blessed are the poor in spirit. You see, Jesus is about the same thing. He comes into the world and he says, this is the way God works. This is the way God has always worked. And this is what I'm going to do. Blessed are not the strong, not the prosperous, not the strategic and able. Blessed are the poor in spirit. God gives grace to the barren. God helps those who can't help themselves. And then you look all the way through Jesus' ministry and miracle after miracle. What are these? These are demonstrations of the fact that God is a God who rescues people and who helps people and saves people who cannot help themselves. And then later on, Paul says here in the book of Galatians, he says, oh foolish Galatians, please remember the way God works. It's the way it's always been from Abraham to Israel to everything. God is a God who rescues. God doesn't help those who help themselves. God is a God who blesses the barren. God is the one who says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Rejoice, O barren one, he says, the one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who, are not, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the one who has a husband. Here's how Tim Keller puts it. Anyone can belong to God through the gospel, regardless of record and background, regardless of who you are or who you have been or what you have done or how weak, weak you are. Rule-keeping religion is for the noble, the able, the moral, and the strong. But the gospel is for everyone. Jesus actually said that the noble, moral, and strong are in general further from the kingdom than the moral failures and the spiritually weak. And this was so hopeful and encouraging to the Galatian Christians, who were dirty Gentiles, you remember? They were outside all of God's promises, and many of them had worshipped idols and had been involved in sexual morality and all sorts of horrible things. And God came and said, yes, I know you, you're, you're weak and you're desolate and you're, and you're barren spiritually, but God is a God who brings fruit out of fruit, fruitlessness. And he gives righteousness to those who have none. And so here, here is what Paul says here this morning. He says there are two ways. This is an allegory. Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael, Isaac, it's two allegories. There are two ways to live. There are st two strategies to life. There are two ways to approach and to relate to God. Which way are you on? Grace, inability, gift, receiving. Or are you achieving and working and earning and in slavery? Like Harold Abrams, I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence, but will I? Well, let me end on some application. Okay, here's the relevance. We're finally here. Some of you are saying, thank you very much, Brent. Um, I couldn't, couldn't wait for that. So here, here's the application. How do you know which road you're on? You know, we all kind of slip back into the old road, I think. How do you know which road you're on? Let me give you some questions. Diagnostic questions maybe to ask yourself. How do you know you're on the road of, a, of Isaac? Well, here's one question. How do you view your barrenness? How do you view your weakness? You see, for children of, 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 of Isaac, 
your barrenness is actually an opportunity for God to bless. How do you view your weakness? How do you view your inability? How do you view those things that embarrass you about yourself? You see, Ishmael is afraid of those things. He hates those things. He'd never admit those things about himself. But Isaac, the sons of Isaac, the, son of, for, uh, the sons of faith, for them, barrenness and weakness is an opportunity for God's grace to come in. How do you view your own weakness? Are you defensive about your weakness? Are, will you never uh, admit your weakness? And what about your sin? How do you view your sin? Do you view your sin as something that will keep you out permanently Or does your sin lead you to cry out to God? How do you view your barrenness and weakness? At one point, Paul, uh, in in 1 Corinthians, he says, he had some sort of weakness. We don't know what it was. It was probably some physical thing. And some people say it was his eyes, kind of, he had some eye condition. And some people say it was he had a unibrow. (laughs) Uh, I have the unibrow, so that's kind of mean. But uh, some people say it was he was short. Man, another thing that I've got. <laughs> and some people say it was bow leg. People say there's a lot of things about Paul. He wasn't a very impressive person. And so at one point he comes to God with his weakness. And he says, God, I've got this weakness. Could you take it away? Could you take it away from me? I'm, this is hindering my ministry. I want to save the world, and this, this weakness is a roadblock for me, like Sarah's barren womb. And what does, Paul, what does God say to Paul? He says, my grace is made perfect in your weakness. How do you view your weakness? If you're a son of Isaac, you'll admit your weakness. And you could come out with your weakness and say, yes, it's there, but this is why I need God's grace. I don't have this ability on my own, but my weakness actually helps me reach out to receive God's promise. How do you view your own weakness? That'll tell you which road you're on. Let me give you another question. How do you view the barrenness of others? How do you view the weakness of others? What's so surprising about this passage is in verse 28. Notice what he says. He says, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just, notice what he says here. But just as that t- at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born a- according to the spirit, so it also is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. What does he say? He says, listen, look what happened here. He says the Ishmael people persecuted the Isaac people. And this is the way it always is. If you're a law keeper, if you're a self-sufficiency person, if you are justifying yourself, you're gonna always put pressure and even despise people that you view as weak. Tim Keller again puts it this way. Because the gospel is more threatening to religious people than non-religious people, religious people are very touchy and nervous about their standing with God. Their insecurity makes them hostile to the gospel, which insists that their best deeds are useless before God. One of the ways we know our self-image is based on justification by Christ is that we are not hateful and hostile to people who differ from us One of the ways we know our self-image is based on justification by works is that we persecute. Do you despise people that you view as weak? Are you a critical person? What Paul is saying is that if you're you're an Isaac person, you you, you, you view the barrenness of others differently. 
You don't despise those who are weak. And then finally, let me ask a third question, then I'll be done. How do you view Jesus? How do you view your barrenness? How do you view the barrenness of others? But finally, how do you view Jesus? You see, Isaac people, people that know that, they don't, that they're unable, people that, that are not trying to justify themselves by their own works, those people view Jesus differently. He's more than a helper. He's more than a good example. He is a savior. And so Jesus came into the world and he lived the life that we should have led and he died the death that we should have died. And he offers us this gift and those of us who are aware of our weakness will reach out for the gift. And we'll need Jesus. We'll need him. He's not just a nice person, but he is our rescuer. How do you feel about Jesus? These are the three applications. And so which road are we on? Are we Isaac or are we Ishmael? Are we justifying ourselves or are we receiving justification as a gift? And what Paul says, if you're, if you're like Isaac, you're going to view your own weakness differently. And you're going to view the weaknesses of others differently. And you're going to ho- have a whole different orientation to Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this passage. And Lord, it, it presents to us uh, clearly the, the two ways. It's the, it's the God helps those who helps themselves versus God helps those who can't help themselves. And Lord, the fact of the matter is none of us are able to justify ourselves. All of us have flaws. All of us have weakness. All of us in our own human ability cannot attain to righteousness. And yet the good news is that you offer us everything for free and that our justification is a gift. And God, I pray that we would walk in that today and this week, that you would help us, Lord, to live in to our freedom as your children. God, that we that we might look at our own uh, flaws differently and that, uh, Lord, you might use those things to bring us to a greater dependence upon your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.